Hey folks, and welcome to episode 199 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing whether or not the Song of Songs is an allegory. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation over this book. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm sitting here across my kitchen table with Alistair Roberts, who is uh, visiting us here in Birmingham for a couple of weeks. And we're having a good time discussing uh, plans for Theopolis and also doing a good bit of recording and uh, videotaping for uh, future uh, broadcasts, future um, videos on our YouTube channel and future podcasts. Uh, Brian Motes is here controlling the audio. And uh, today we're continuing our discussion of uh, the Song of Songs, which I began in the last couple of episodes without Alistair, sadly. But Alistair is with us for the remainder of this series, which we'll be recording over the next week or so. And uh, we'll want to cover a couple of general questions about the interpretation of the Song of Songs, a couple of additional questions beyond the ones that I discussed in the first couple of episodes. And then uh, after the next couple of episodes, we'll get into a uh, kind of section-by-section discussion of what's actually in the song. But today I wanted to address the question of the allegory of the Song of Songs and basically the question whether the Song of Songs is an allegory. Tremper Longman, in his commentary on the Song of Songs, says, There is absolutely nothing in the Song of Songs that hints of a meaning different from the sexual meaning. Uh, Longman is a contemporary Old Testament scholar, an evangelical Old Testament scholar, and he is stating a position that's historically quite in the minority uh, for most of the history of interpretation of the Song of Songs, beginning with Jewish interpretation, through patristic Christian interpretation, through medieval mystical interpretations, into Puritan interpretations, the Song of Songs has been read as an allegorical text and uh, seen as a song about the uh, relationship between Christ and his church. Ultimately, for uh, Jewish commentators, it's about the relationship of the Lord to his people. And it, uh, the view that Longman states there is a fairly recent one that uh, begins to rise in the 19th century and into the 20th century uh, with the new standards of reading new criteria for deciding what constitutes an allegory or not. And uh, the uh, um, so that we have a, a widespread view, at least, that the song is, is not an allegory, that it's a celebration of physical love. Now, one of the charges that you have from the more recent commentary, commentary is that uh, the older commentary with its allegorization is just uh, displaying the typical Christian squeamishness about sex, that we can't really talk about sex openly, uh, even though this, the poem is clearly about uh, erotic love. We can't admit that, so we cover it over with uh, spiritual realities. Um, I don't think that's what's going on, but that's the, that's the question that's being that I want to pose uh, to, the, to the poem today and talk about what evidence there is of an allegorical, uh, that uh, justifies an allegorical reading. Even the way that the study of the poem is 
approached would suggest to me that the question of its presence within the canon is an important part of determining how it is to be read. And the approach of a biblical studies that abstracts texts from their canonical context and from the approach that that would invite, that that is part of the difficulty that we face when thinking about the proper genre and way to interpret such a poem. Yeah, and do you have particular things in mind when you say that? Uh, what, what parts of the canonical context would you see are relevant to the song? Most particularly the fact that it is part of the canon that relates to the witness to the Lord. And for that reason alone, it suggests that it refers to something beyond mere sexual relations, that sexual relations are not mere, perhaps. Um, and when we think about it in the context of its New Testament reception, that adds another dimension to it if we read something like Revelation and see the way that themes of Song of Songs emerge within that context, that strengthens the notion that this is a text to be read with the New Testament writers in that way. Yeah, and I think that your point about whether uh, uh, sex is mere sex, whether that's possible within a canonical context, I think that's a really crucial point. If you know, the a relationship between uh, Yahweh and Israel is depicted as a marital relationship with the covenant sealed at Sinai, and then that continues on throughout the Old Testament. You have the same kind of marital imagery, obviously, in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere in the New Testament, culminating in the last chapters of Revelation where you have the bridegroom and the bride uh, united at the, end of, at the end of that series of visions. So within that context, uh, sexuality is itself uh, full of significance. It, it signifies something. It's designed to do so. It's created as a symbol of God's relationship to the church. That's not something that, that's not an external interpretation that's imposed on the song or on sexuality, but that's kind of built into the nature of sexuality. The other thing I'd add to that is C.S. Lewis's understanding of reading a text and the way that certain texts invite certain sorts of readings and also how they reward them. When we're thinking about reading the song, one difficulty I think many people have with the idea of an allegorical reading is that they see a lot of allegorical readings that seem strained, that are not answered by the text itself, that the text is forced into a framework that seems alien to it, rather than the reading elicits an answer from the text, that the text rewards that approach. I suspect that if we're going to argue for an allegorical reading of the text, much of the power of that argument will be seen in showing that it leads to a smooth and compelling reading of the text itself, not that the preconceptions of allegorical reading that we bring to the text are the right ones. Right, right. So yeah, we're we're driven back as always to the text itself, and uh, I think that uh, for me there are several lines of um, evidence from within the text of the Song of Songs that uh, there's uh, it was written as an allegory. This allegory is an allegorical reading is not uh, it's not uh, imposed on a non-allegorical text, but there are hints that uh, this was intended to be allegorical. And I'm thinking of things like uh, the point that. Uh, Edsme Kingsmill makes in her monograph on the Song of Songs, which I've mentioned on previous podcasts, a very eccentric monograph from about a decade ago, uh, published in an Oxford series. 
But uh, she makes the point that uh, you have a uh, you have an, uh, a, a numerological uh, thread through the song that points to uh, Yahweh as the lover, and she's speaking specifically of the uh, use of the word dodi. Dod is beloved. Dodi with the first singular suffix is my beloved, and that word is uh, used throughout the song uh, by the bride speaking about her lover, and. Uh, Dodi in that form is used 26 times, which is the gematria of Yahweh. It's the name of Yahweh. So Kingsmill says that in all her reading of commentary in the Song of Songs, going back to ancient Jewish commentary all the way through Christian commentary of every age, she hasn't found anybody who noticed this. Yeah. Um, so 2009, and she discovers something that apparently nobody else has discovered before. I think that makes a lot of sense that the, uh, the lover would be given, first of all, name my beloved, and then that the writer would pattern the text with this numerological, uh, numerological point that uh, Dodi is Yahweh, that he bears the name, uh, bears the number of Yahweh. Um, and she also she extends that by talking about the uh, connections between the Song of Songs and the allegory of the vineyard in Isaiah five. Shares a lot of imagery with the Song of Songs, not least the vineyard imagery itself, uh, and that's clearly a an allegory of Yahweh and his people, Yahweh and his beloved vineyard, and the, the, the same language is used of the vineyard there, the same a variation of the same language. So she connects it with the Isaiah 5 passage and makes a case for seeing Dodi as a, as a, as a pointer to uh, the Lord as the lover of his, of his bride. And when we talk about allegory, often we think about directly connecting the notion of the lover and the beloved with Christ and the church, for instance. But often there can be transitional steps that help to strengthen the connection. And I think recognizing those, certainly in my experience, has helped me to read it in an allegorical way without seeing it as a forced transition. Yeah, and I think that, that uh, the line of argument I was just summarizing uh, can incorporate some of that. Uh, they're, they're, you can you can see that as an argument for straightforward allegory of the woman as Israel and the and Dodi as the Lord. But there are a couple of subtle hints that uh, there's there's another uh, another dimension to it. Dodi means my beloved, but uh, in the Hebrew the same consonants a dalit and a vav and a dalit are the consonants for the name David. So it's Dodi in the text, so it's my beloved, but it's also my David is running through it. So you have a poem that at least implicitly, repeatedly names the king. Now somebody's pointed out that Dode, again, same consonants as David, Dode is used with or without the suffix 33 times in the book, which is a name, number that connects perhaps with, uh, with part of David's career. So you have this kind of overlay, you have a, a numerological pointer to Yahweh as the, as the lover. Uh, you also have this uh, numerological pointer to, uh, to David, to the king as the, as the lover. So that you have this kind of messianic dimension that's built into it. I think the other, another kind of uh, line that leads to that kind of transitional or multiple reference is the use of my beloved terminology in the, in the New Testament. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And perhaps the connection with imagery of doves at that point. Yeah. Very right. natural connection back to the story of or the poem that we have in Song of Songs. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, we'll 
look at the uh, in more detail at the various sections of the text, but I do think that the the doves are the doves are eyes in the Song of Songs, and the doves are eyes represented as messengers, and me, the eyes are sending out messages. It's I, maybe it's a, the analogy is between the shape of an eye and a dove, or maybe between the the whiteness of the eye, clar- clarity of the eye and the dove, but. Um, the way that it's the way that comparison is made, it's not the uh, the the woman's eyes are sending messages to her beloved. It rolls together with a with a nice pneumatological point. You get the spirit as the as the uh, communicator of uh, God's presence to His people. Another line of another line that kind of adds uh, another dimension to it is the uh, the use of imagery that's drawn from the landscape, the topography of Israel. Uh, the bride is frequently compared to either uh, natural features of the land or to uh, architectural features of the land. She has a neck like the Tower of David, for example, a nose also like a tower. So uh, she is she stands in for the land, the land stands in for her. So you have this semi-political dimension to it as well. So that's I think that's another um, another of the mix uh, in, in the allegory. It's a political allegory of the king and his people or the king and his land. And as we look through the New Testament, particularly through, I think, books of Samuel, we see that theme of erotic kingship, even in the um, dirge over Jonathan and Saul, the beauty and the language of gazelles as well that comes forward at that point, David's relationship with the land and his relationship with Jonathan that's quite, it plays on those themes. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the attention given to the appearance of both Saul and David, David being ruddy and handsome and Saul being head and shoulders above her. These were figures that stood not just in a bare political relationship to the people, but they were the beloved of the people, that David and Saul were people that the women sang songs about. And that relationship is something that's fleshed out, I think, within the song. Yeah, I, I think that's important to make the point that way. And Luther is one of the first to introduce this kind of political dimension into the interpretation of the song. Uh, but he does that uh, in place of an erotic interpretation. So he plays the two off against each other. It's not about eros. It's about uh, politics and the king's love for his land and the people's love for their king. But I, I, I think putting those two together is important. The, the surface of the you don't want to you don't want to lose the surface of the poem when you start talking about the allegorical dimensions to it, and I think uh, uh, kind of a political eros is really what's what's uh, being presented there at at, at the level of uh, political interpretation. It's about the desire that a people has for its rulers and that a uh, king or ruler has for its people and his land. You, being a subject of a monarchy, I maybe have a, a deeper insight into this than some people who live merely in the republic. Uh, I'm curious. Fill that out for me. What's uh, what is the? How do, what is? What do you think that's adding to your your political sensibility? One of the things that you do have within a monarchy is a form of representation that isn't merely a formal democratic process. And so the queen is perhaps one of the most representative public figures that we have. She stands for the nation and far more people feel represented by her than feel represented by our politicians. I believe that's for a number of reasons, um, partly because we feel represented by having a family, 
at the heart of our public life, not just having representatives who perform government offices, but people who are living a form of life and transitioning from generation to generation and fighting for our country and people who represent the faith of our country as the um, connection between the monarch and the Church of England. And then that transition of family life from generation to generation. This is the stuff of a society, a human community. And that presence of the family or the dynasty at the heart of the people in Israel, I think, is part of what um, gives monarchy its power, that you feel drawn to this, this community, this family at the heart of your nation that represents what it means for your nation to pass on its life. And it sounds like you're saying the Bushes and the Trumps <laughs> don't quite qualify. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, you're moving that direction, perhaps. But <laughs> I'm also curious if you uh, touch on the 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 uh, erotic political uh, that that combination in your forthcoming heirs together. Is I that, do. Is that yes. a dimension of biblical theology? Yes. What, what, what do you, how do you how do you go about developing that? Focusing particularly in the context of Samuel, I believe that there we see, for instance, particularly in something like um, David's lament over Saul and Jonathan, you see something of that relationship. And then that gets fleshed out, of course, within the song. I believe that that grounds the theology and then the allegory, as we're talking about, of the song. And unless we appreciate that particular connection, the allegory will always be a bit more of a reach. Mm-hmm. It within its context, it fits very naturally into the relationship between the king and the land and the people, then the relationship between the Messiah and the land and the people. And then that very much moves into the way that the king represents and serves as a vicegerent of God himself and his relationship with the people. The fundamental marital relationship is that God has taken this people for himself. And then the king serves within that larger framework yeah, and I think that one of the things that this has um, alerted me to, thinking, trying to think through this uh, in in the context of the song, is the uh, I'll put it this way: the uh, uh, we we think that the the uh, we're in an age where a photogenic candidate is the only one who can who can win the presidency in the U.S. Uh, the tallest the tallest candidate is always the one who wins. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how long that's been true. That's been a pretty consistent trend, and it worked out in 2016. But there's a there's a certain kind of we we, we think that's a corruption of politics that there, people are uh, uh, find candidates desirable because of a particular physical presence or particular physical appearance. But um, I think that's that's first of all that's an ancient standard. As you're talking about David, you talk about other uh, Saul as well, and Absalom. Part of Absalom's appeal in his rebellion is the fact that he's he shares the uh, beauty, the physical beauty that uh, David has, and he's described in terms similar to Saul. And so he's an, he's an attractive person. And I, I, I'd want to connect that to uh, some kind of reflection of glory, which in the Bible is linked up with authority. There's a, there's a link between a certain kind of physical presence. It doesn't have to be necessarily be physical beauty in a, in, a, in a kind of fashion sense, but there's a kind of there's a there's a link between physical presence between the bearing the glory of God and the the ability of somebody to speak and act with authority. 
And when we connect this, make that allegorical connection to Christ's relationship with his people, it's recognizing that the the ruler of the people, the king, the queen, their authority is bound up in the hearts of the people. They are loved. And Christ's power as king is very much connected with that erotic dimension that Christ rules in the hearts of his people. And that erotic element, which has very much been prominent within a certain sort of evangelicalism, having Christ in your heart and that sense of love, is not an improper one. And it's often one that maybe we push back against because we see it being misused, Christ as the boyfriend type of analogy. But there is something proper there, that Christ's heart, the hearts of Christ's people are found willing, and his authority is found in the response of the heart to the goodness of who he is and the delight that we find in him. Yeah, and you turn back in that into the, into the political side of things, and I think that's a, that's a massive challenge to procedural liberalism. And this is kind of what you're getting at with the monarchy. What we have as representative is we have representatives who are the result of a, an artificial process of voting that puts them in a certain office for a particular period of time. I mean, they, they cart their family along because that, that's, good for, that's good for the campaign. But uh, it's, it's the individual who's, who's, who's uh, taking the representation. And just as a, as a result of this kind of uh, formalistic procedure, and you can say you, you have this kind of attachment to, uh, this kind of erotic attachment to a certain candidate, but it, it doesn't have the same kind of resonance. And um, so, so the, the, the liberal, procedural liberalism just doesn't have that, you know, it's not a politics of love. Although we do sometimes incorporate the language of love. We talk about the president's honeymoon period mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No, that's what I, was, uh, what I was bringing myself to. Thanks for the... <laughs> Uh, procedural liberalism kind of denies what's actually happening in in its own uh, on its own territory, because uh, people do in fact act out of attractions and passions, and but liberalism is set up to try to ignore those and to uh, you know authority comes by this purely procedural process of campaigning and election, but that's not actually what's happening. So it's, there's this double doubleness to liberal order where theoretically it's doing one thing, but actually something else is going on. Uh, one other line of uh, uh, argument I wanted to highlight was, uh, I think uh, one of the other strong arguments, for, internal arguments for saying that this song is an allegory is the climax in chapter eight, where you have these, what are uh, widely recognized as kind of thematic verses, programmatic verses for the whole poem. Put me like a seal on your heart, uh, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is severe as shale. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor waters, uh, rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all his riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. And the last, last phrase, that's uh, Song of Songs 8, 6, and 7. The last phrase of verse 6, the very flame of the Lord. Uh, the uh, Hebrew has flame with the suffix yah, and you'll find translations that take the yah not as a, a fragment of God's name, but rather as a superlative, a most intense flame or something along those lines. Uh, but I think, the, I think the translation of it as the name, that's a, if, that is a, if that's an intensifier at the end of the word, that's a virtually unprecedented use of the divine name as an intensifier. 
I think the the art um, it's it's preferable to read it as a reference to Yahweh's uh, fire. Um, and that uh, you read to the end of the poem, you could read the whole entire poem and think, you know, this is just this is you could read along with Trepper Long and say, there's nothing here, <laughs> nothing in the song itself that hints at a meaning beyond the sexual meaning. And then you get to eight six, and suddenly the fire that's been talked about really throughout the poem, the passion that's been talked about, is linked with the flame of Yahweh. And then that's surrounded by all these um, characteristics, features of divine love, a love that overcomes death, a love that's as jealous and severe as shale, a love that waters cannot quench. And you have kind of Exodus image. This is the love that, this is Exodus love, this is resurrection love, uh, love that can't be defeated or killed. And somehow the erotic love that's been described in the whole poem is a reflection of that or participation in it. I think as often happens in the Bible, you uh, have this kind of punchline at the end of something that forces you to go back and read the entire read the entire poem again, um, and see that the the love and the and the passion that's being described is has a theological dimension to it throughout. And on that second reading of the text, as we revisit in, in the light of that punchline, I think we do see these allusions, as you say, to the various Old Testament and things from Genesis and Exodus and elsewhere, whether that's the scene of the man and the woman in the garden, whether it's um, God's people coming out of the wilderness and entering into the land. Um, these themes are in this, they are present in the text if we look more carefully. And that reading again shows that an allegory is rewarded quite richly from this text, but it takes a patience and a willingness, again, as we mentioned earlier, a recognition that sex is never mere sex, that in the New Testament as well, we see something about the mystery of Christ and the church being disclosed in marriage, that even what we might think of as mere marriage is something that has within it a testimony to something greater. Yeah, uh, the um, reference, to, reference to Adam and Eve in the garden, I think is linked up very closely with this kind of comparison of love to a flame. Uh, Jim Jordan likes to point out the transition in the name of Adam once Eve appears. He's Adam, taken from the ground. Uh, he's a man, man of earth. But when the woman, the Isha, is taken from the side of man, then um, he's uh, suddenly called an Ish. She shall be called an Isha because she was taken from the man. Uh, Ish is related to the word for flame, Ish in Hebrew. And there's a... Uh, the, a progression of Adam is from earth to fire, and it's in the presence of the woman that he's put on fire, which uh, I think conjures up, as, as other parts of the song do, conjures up sacrificial imagery. Uh, another dimension of the allegory that we haven't talked about is a liturgical dimension. There's a, there's a temple dimension. I think we're going to get to that in a, in a later uh, podcast. There's a liturgical temple dimension to it and a sacrificial dimension to the lovemaking of the two lovers. Uh, each of them offering him or herself to the other with my body I thee worship. That's the kind of ongoing theme, and it's that's again explicitly brought out uh, at the end with the reference to Yahweh's flame. When we talk about allegory, often we can see allegory as almost placing over the surface of the text another reading that kind of face that surface reading. How do we allow for traffic between? these two levels of interpretation and multiple levels of interpretation, recognizing 
that, as you're saying, that there are themes of worship within the relationship between a man and wife. There's also these erotic themes in our relationship with God. Mm-hmm. How can we be those who read this text in a better way that gets the full strength of the allegorical connection that's drawn rather than just using the allegory to efface the sexual surface meaning? Of the right, words? right. I mean, the, this is a simplistic answer, but I think the, those different levels have to be mutually interpreting. So the, um, what we then give an example, the example that we were discussing earlier about the political dimension to the poem political dimension is not, uh, we don't extract that, say that this is a poem about the king and his people or the king of his land. What we want to do is put the surface of the poem, the erotic, the erotic poem that's obvious with this political dimension that, that pops out in various ways in the poem. And uh, think about you know the politics of eros and the erotics of politics. We want to think about the two of them together. I mean that that's a very that's a kind of simplistic answer, but that's the I think that's uh, the key to it is to try to uh, see these as mutually interpreting dimensions. And, and beyond that, that, when we talk about allegory, is it helpful to think about allegory itself as something erotic, about the desire that or the connection that exists between two things that are at some remove that are held apart in tension, but sparks can fly between them. And the whole language of the song and its framing as an allegory is something that is exhibiting an erotics in scriptural interpretation more generally that we could learn from. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you phrase it as a question, but you, uh, I, I take it as a, I take it as a uh, statement because I think that's, that's definitely the flavor of much of the traditional reading and traditional interpretation of the song, uh, that the, the uh, mode of reading itself expresses the desire that the song is about. And the commentator, Bede, for example, uh, Origen, the commentator is being caught up in the love that he's describing in the poem in the, in the midst of describing it, in the midst of, um, you know, through the reading of the poem, through the teaching of the poem, there's this reaching for, there's this erotic reaching for God and uh, for God's love that's depicted there. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.